So uh, I'm not exactly telling you anything you don't know, but isn't it true that we all do our very best to avoid people and things and places that we don't like? Uh, again, it's not exactly breaking news, right? But, but it's true because it's, it's kind of human nature. Like it's something that we do from the time that we're little kids. We do our best to avoid things that we don't like, whether it's, you know, like I have an eight-year-old and he does his best most of the time to avoid vegetables uh, or, or whether it's exercise or whether it's people who only eat vegetables or people who exercise all the time or people who dress like they only eat vegetables and exercise all the time. Like we do our best to avoid things we don't like. And, and, and moms, I, I know that, that being a mom is mostly like unicorns and rainbows and every day you just wake up and it's just a beautiful gift from God, motherhood is. Uh, and, but I know that there are occasionally some things that maybe aren't your favorite, though uh, I, I read an article, I actually didn't even read the article because I just loved the headline. The title of the article was Things Moms Hate with the Fire of a Thousand Sons. And I thought... Man, that is a great that is a great title for an article. Like I don't even need to read it because I just started thinking, uh, and so I made a, a list. Like, I, and I, surely it, it, this isn't universal, but if, if a lot of the moms I know, like unannounced or uninvited guests, yeah, isn't that fun, moms? A school drop off or pickup. Like if you have, if I think that's part of hell. Is like you if you just get sent to a permanent school drop off or pickup. Uh, or, or the relentless demands of feeding everyone every day. Or, or maybe it's just trying to get everybody ready to leave the house. And it's clothes and it's supplies and toys and food and shoes and meltdowns because they don't want to put their shoes on or they don't want to wear those shoes or they don't want to wear that clothes. And you're just like, for the love. When it comes to hard or irritating things, though, sometimes like we can avoid them and it doesn't really hurt us. Like, I really love movies, but I'm not a huge fan of scary movies, mainly because they scare me, and so I don't like them, and so I usually try to avoid them. And to be honest, I don't think I've really lost a lot. It hasn't really hurt me that I don't watch scary movies. But sometimes avoiding things that, like, that, that we don't like actually can hurt us, right? And, and, and then there's, then there's the, like the really hard and painful things about life that, that we can't avoid no matter how hard we try. And the worst part about those things is like just because you go through something, just because you go through those experiences doesn't actually guarantee that you'll be any stronger or better or wiser afterwards. It just means that you went through it. And honestly, that's really why we're doing this series because I believe with all of my being that life is beautiful and amazing and breathtaking, but that's also not all that it is, right? It's also ugly and painful and difficult. There's times where it takes your breath away and times where it knocks the breath out of you. So how do we go through those experiences? How do we step into not just our everyday, not just the routine, not just the rhythm, not just the, the stuff we don't like every day, but the really difficult, challenging parts of life? How do we not just make it through, but rise above? So last week we began this conversation about resilience and we began talking about how resilience is really the difference between people who push through and overcome no matter what life throws at them and people who give up and get stuck. Now the good news for all of us is that no matter what your natural sort of personality or makeup is like, I mean, I know in this room, we're all really strong and crazy resilient in here. And but I'm talking about other people who are a little weaker. You ever known somebody that's kind of weak? Like they just melt 
in the face. Like anytime like life rains on them, they're just like fall apart. You don't, you can point at them if you want, if they're in the room, just single them out. But, but the, the good news is that the resilience is actually a muscle that can be developed and strengthened in our lives. It's something that we can grow in, we can get better at, we can get stronger in. So the question is then how do we do that? And that's what we've been tackling. That's what we're gonna tackle all month long. That's really the point of this series is to look at the recipe or as you heard the Dodge Ram voice guy say, the rules of resilience. I, I think part of the challenge of the times in which we live is that as a culture, as a people, we keep looking for an easier way and an easier place to do life. And, and honestly, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but the danger is that if we're not careful, we, we begin to move toward an unhealthy pattern of only going places and doing things and connecting with people that are comfortable for us. It's no secret, the massive shifts that are happening in our country, like physical shifts of people moving, right? All over where people, you know, pick up and move to escape something about the place where they've been living. And that's obviously true of a lot of us in here. That's how we ended up here, me included. And it's great. Again, there's nothing inherently wrong with it. But what happens, what, what do we do, right, when we get to the new place and some of the same problems and the same challenges and the same stresses and the same struggles start showing up? Like, what do we do then? Do we just keep moving farther and farther out till we're living alone in the mountains? <laughs> yes, do it. And if you're a Jesus follower, it can sometimes get confusing too, right? Because, I mean, isn't God supposed to help us? And if God's helping us, doesn't that mean like life is supposed to be even like a little bit easier? But, but the question that I want you to wrestle with this morning is like, what if, what if instead of making our life easier, what if, what if God is actually just trying to make it more meaningful? So there's a guy in the New Testament who wrote about half of the New Testament. His name is Paul and he decided that he was gonna make a difference with his life, that he had this incredible encounter with Jesus and it changed everything about him. It changed the entire course and trajectory of his life and that he was gonna take the message of Jesus all over the Mediterranean rim, all over the known world at the time. But let me give you a quick sampling of the kinds of experiences that he had. And these are all straight out of the book of Acts, uh, which is the fifth book in the New Testament. And Paul comes on the scene in like roughly chapter 9, 10, 11, somewhere in there. And then he makes this decision and begins to travel and do all this stuff that I just said. In chapter 13, it says that one city that he went into, that people heaped abuse on him and they stirred up persecution against him. In chapter 14, people refused to believe what he was saying. They got angry and they stoned him and they thought they'd stoned him to death and they dragged him outside of the city. He was unconscious. They dragged him outside of the city and left him for dead out there because they thought he was dead. A little while later, he comes to and he gets up and he goes back into the city. In chapter 16, he helps this slave girl and kind of sets her free and people just lose their minds and a giant crowd attacks him and his friends and they have them arrested and they're stripped and they're beaten with rods and they're severely flogged. I thought beaten with rods was being severely flogged, but they're listed as, as different things. And then they're thrown in jail. In chapter 17, an angry mob starts rioting and they rush the house where he's staying. A couple of cities later, he's speaking, and it was just a real sort of calm and easy day for him because the crowd didn't attack or beat him. They just mocked him to his face. 
In chapter 18, the people he was trying to help became abusive. Later, they made up lies and all these false accusations about him to get him thrown in jail. In chapter 19, the people became so furious about what he was saying that they began to shout and riot to shout him down so that nobody could hear what he was talking about. In chapter 20, people plot to kill him. And later in that chapter, even, when mo- even in the moments when people weren't trying to beat or kill him, things didn't go so well. One day he's speaking, he shows up and he's speaking to this group of disciples and he's, they're in this room on the third story of a building and a guy named Eutychus is sitting in a, in a window. And Luke, who's writing all this stuff down, he's ri- writing the book of Acts, who's taking all these notes and keeping track of all this stuff. Luke says that the guy that's sitting in the window, that he fell into a deep sleep because Paul just kept talking on and on and on. And that makes me feel really good as a communicator because the guy that's made the biggest impact on the world outside of Jesus himself just put people to sleep. And so the guy falls asleep and as he's falling, as he falls asleep, he falls out of the window to his death. And the message there is don't fall asleep in church because you... (laughs) don't know what's waiting for you on the other side of that nap. <laughs> that story has a happy ending, but we don't have time for it. Go, go, read, go read it when you have time. In chapter 21, it says that the whole city of Jerusalem, the whole entire city was stirred up against him and angry crowds came running at him from every direction. They grab him, they began beating him and trying to kill him. Things get so violent and out of control in the city that the Roman guards, the Roman army had to move into the area of town where they were and they arrested Paul for his own safety. They basically placed him in protect, protective custody. In chapter 22, he's speaking and the crowd literally starts yelling. This is like, and I quote, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. In chapter 23, he's defending himself in a court hearing because he's been arrested so many times and falsely accused and a mob inside the courtroom becomes so violent that the Roman guards again have to take him into protective custody. Only the difference is this time, the people who held, that were in there, they held a secret meeting right afterwards where 40 men swore an oath that they would not eat again or drink again until they had murdered him. In chapter 27, he's put on a ship to be shipped off to Rome to stand trial. But while they're on their way, they encounter this massive storm and they're lost at sea because they cannot navigate. And they're without food for two weeks because they had thrown everything overboard so they didn't crash, they didn't sink. And everybody on board the ship gave up except for the prisoner, Paul. And he's like, hey guys, it's gonna be fine, we're gonna make it. In chapter 28, just when they thought it couldn't get any worse, the ship runs aground, it's violently destroyed, Everybody somehow survives, but they're marooned on an island for three months. And as they crawl up on the shore of this island, the island people come down to welcome them and they build this fire for them. And Paul goes over to get more firewood for the fire. And as he reaches down to grab the firewood, a viper bites his hand. Now, at this point, I don't know about you, but when I hear all that stuff, I'm like, bro, give up. What are you doing? God is sending you a sign. You're doing the wrong thing. That's because that's how we think, right? Right? Because there's, there's, this, there's something about where we think that if it's the right fight, the fight should be easy. Now, when we say that out loud, we know that's ridiculous. But still, we cannot help but feel that way. And maybe even especially for those of us who are Jesus followers, for some reason, we've got it in our heads that if it's the right thing, it's just going to come naturally. Like if God wants it to happen, it'll just happen. 
If you end up shipwrecked or stoned, the old-fashioned kind, if you get attacked or beaten, like the, that's a sign that you shouldn't be doing that. Maybe the most incredible thing about all of it is that none of those things changed Paul. None of those things of what he went through. He was filled with hope. He loved people everywhere he went. In fact, Paul is the guy, is the same guy that wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, and now these three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And I know we read those words at weddings, but it had a completely different meaning for the guy who wrote them. Isn't that incredible? Right? I, I think I would respond like, wait, 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 Paul, but what about, what about all the abuse? What about all the beatings? Dude, you've almost died multiple times. You've been whipped. You've been beaten. You've been falsely accused. You've been imprisoned. Now these three remain faith, hope, and love. What what if one of the ways that you can measure resilience in your life is not just how quickly you lose hope, but how easily you become unloving? See, resilience doesn't just help us bounce back. It keeps us from becoming rigid and brittle and ungracious, unloving. Last week, we started looking at an Old Testament story about a guy named Gideon who felt challenged by God to step up and help free his people, the nation of Israel, from oppression. They were being decimated by a whole bunch of other different tribes and peoples, not the least of which was a group called the Midianites, And on the outside, he wouldn't have been anybody's choice, anybody's first choice, much less any choice. But God saw something in him that nobody else did. So God shows up and says, hey, and he's hiding out. And God shows up and says, hey, mighty warrior, I've got something for you to do. You, I've heard all the cries of my people. Now I'm sending you to rescue them. See, the the story of the scriptures isn't about a God finding courageous people who can handle the task. It's actually about God transforming cowards and calling them to live courageously. And so if you're overwhelmed this morning, if you're facing something that's too big for you, I've got really good news. You're exactly the kind of person that God picks to do incredible things. If you're not overwhelmed or you're not facing something that's too big for you, guess what? God is wanting to to lead you to do something that's too big for you. And so he begins taking Gideon through a process of building up his strength and building up his courage and his resilience. And it wasn't about attitude or inspiration. We talked a lot about that last week. It was actually about action and obedience. And that's actually where things begin to change, not just for him, but for all of the people. But, but it's interesting because in our culture, if that was a movie, God shows up, finds a guy that's hiding out and says, mighty warrior, you're gonna do this. You're gonna go rescue the people the story, the rest of the story would be about that guy by himself, single-handedly, gladiator style, going and defeating thousands, you know, three, this is the movie 300, right? But Gideon doesn't run off and try to do it all by himself. He doesn't try to make it all happen. He begins building a team and so things build to the point where it's time for him to put together an army. And so he sounds the alarm and he sends word out to a few of the tribes of Israel looking for warriors. And the response is pretty good. 32,000 men show up to fight. It's, it's not enough for them to win, but it's a pretty good start. And so now he's thinking if he can just get word to the rest of the tribes, they'll be in business. But God has other plans. So this is how it goes in Judges chapter 7. 
It says, Gideon and his army got up early and they went as far as the spring of Harad. The armies of Midian were camped north of them. And the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. I didn't even know it was possible to have too many warriors, right? When you're going into a fight. You have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved, them, that they saved themselves by their own strength. Tell the people, whoever's timid or afraid, that they may leave this mountain and go home. So 22,000 of them went home, leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. Wait, wait, wait. We're going the wrong way, God. Like we had 32,000. Now I don't care if they're scared. I'm scared, right? Now we only got 10,000. Thanks, Right? Isn't it easy to feel like at times that, that we want more than God wants for us, that the thing that we're trying to do, that the victory that we want or the, the thing we're trying to accomplish, the dream we're chasing, the thing that we're trying to fix, the tra- thing we're trying to make it through, that we want it more than God, that God just keeps getting in our way, that he's the one that's sort of holding us back or holding out on us, that he's the one that's making it more difficult than it needs to be, that we're the ones putting in all the effort and we're trying really hard to grab a hold of that life, but God just doesn't want us to have it. It's easy for us to feel like that. But the truth is like, we've got it completely backwards. God wants more from us than we could possibly ask or imagine. He wants more for us which also demands more from us because there's always a process that's necessary for us to actually walk through where we can experience and become receptive to the life that he has for us. And so for us, if you know this story, if you've been in church or you grew up in Sunday school and you've seen the little felt boards with the little guys that illustrate the stories, you know, and you're like, that guy was Moses last week. He's Gideon this week. It's like the same guy with a different colored cloak. You know know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> for those of us that know the story, right? If you know how things end up, like it, it to us, it makes sense. What God does, God, God did make sense because of course that's how it's all supposed to go and we know the ending. But if you're Gideon, right? If you're in the middle of it, you have to admit it feels a little ridiculous and random. You're just like, we, we just had 32,000. But I I think this is where we kind of start to see the second rule of resilience sort of come into place. And and that's the idea of of surrounding yourself with the right people and the right relationships. See, nobody's in here going like, whoa, I didn't realize we needed people in our life. Of course we know that. We know we need people. We all know that. But think about the story for a second. When you're going into the biggest fight of your life, how do you decide who you want with you and who you don't? I don't know about you, but like I said a second ago, in my mind, if it's the biggest fight of my life, I'll take them all. I don't care if you're afraid, suit up, put the helmet on, here's a sword, let's go. But God tells them there's too many. And the reason why he tells them there's too many is like, because if you guys win, you'll just get cocky. You'll think you did it and you didn't do it. But I also think that he didn't want them going into battle when the guy who's supposed to have your back is running away because he's scared, Right? And honestly, I, I think that's true in life as much as it's true in war. Like, have you ever had someone in your life and you thought you had each other's back and you had theirs, but when you needed them, you turned around and they were nowhere to be found? 
See, if you're going to be strong, if you're going to build resilience in your life, if you're going to make it through and rise above and do something significant with your life, you obviously cannot do it alone. But also, you can't solve deep problems with shallow relationships. You can't face long-term struggles with short-term friends. The reality is part of resilience comes down to commitment and sticking it out. And this is true for the people that you depend on and it's true for the people who depend on you. So Proverbs chapter 25, verse 19, Proverbs is a collection of wisdom sayings and insight. Proverbs 25, 19 says this. It says, putting confidence in an unreliable person in times of trouble is like chewing with a broken tooth or walking on a lame foot. Isn't that just a great picture? Have you ever had a broken tooth? Have you ever had a, like a problem in your mouth and then you go to chew and it, you want to die because it hurts so bad? See, I, I think his point is not only when you, have an when you have an unreliable friend, not only are they not helping you, they're actually making things harder for you. They're actually holding you back. They're actually preventing you from making it through. See, I can tell you if you're always moving from job to job and church to church and friend to friend and relationship to relationship, it's almost guaranteed that you're moving through the path of least resistance. Almost guaranteed. I think there are times where we think we've been on a long journey because we've traveled one mile a hundred different times with a hundred different people in a hundred different places. But God created us where we would find one person and one place and one church where we can travel a thousand miles with those people. Of course it can be hard, but it makes all the difference in the world because healthy relationships actually make us more resilient because they deepen our reserves and you actually have people that you can trust that will cover your weaknesses. Have you ever had a friend that you relied on and it was like chewing with a broken tooth? or trying to play basketball with a lame foot. I think part of resilience is finding a place and a people where you put down roots, where you go deep, where you are long-term. See, if the problem for you in your life is always your boss or always the church or always the other person, you can be pretty sure it's actually always you. <laughs> and I know that's a little tough, but, but it's true because it means that there's some pattern in your life that you keep running into and you stick around long enough for that pattern or that issue to surface and it gets incredibly uncomfortable and it gets really challenging and instead of doing the work to work through it, you just bail out and go start over somewhere new. So God, he tells Gideon to send everybody home who's afraid and doesn't want to be there and I, I can't help but wonder if there was another part of that, right? I, like the, there was another reason that God had. Because sometimes it, it's the way that other people see you that makes it incredibly hard to change. See, if they, if they only see you through a certain lens, if they only know your past, if they only know who you used to be, that they will tie you down and attach you to that story instead of being the people who are pulling you forward into who you're becoming. Sometimes people sabotage you without even intending to. When God found Gideon, he was afraid, he was hiding out, and I can't help but wonder if that's part of the reason that God had Gideon send everybody home who was scared. Maybe he didn't want them hanging around him because he didn't want to put 
Gideon's new self back into old patterns and habits and fear and have them pull him back into unbelief and fear and melting away and running and hiding. Because the people that are nearest us always, always, always shape what's normal for us. We like to think that we're strong and that we're independent, that we're free thinkers, but that's not how God designed us. That's not how we are. We're, we're not closed systems. We're open loop systems. We're connected to one another. We impact and influence one another. And what I want you to know about whatever it is, whatever fight it is that you're facing, when it comes to resilience, what you can weather is way more about who's with you than what's actually stacked against you. We have some friends um, named Jeff and Kim, and I've shared a little bit here and there multiple times about some of the stuff that happened in our life a few years ago, and it was tragedy, and all kinds of stuff happened to our family, and my stepmom was victimized, and it was really, and my, my nephews died very suddenly and tragically, and so we had a lot of family stuff that was happening, and then um, we had a lot of really challenging stuff that was going on in our church. We had been at our church for 10 years that we had started and we had poured our lives into it and people that we had loved and given our lives away to betrayed us and said all kinds of terrible things about us. And it was just one of the darkest times of my life. But Jeff and Kim, they had started attending our church in the very first year that, it, that we had launched it. And about a year later, he st they started volunteering in kids and then they started running kids, and eventually we hired him as our kids director, and they became more than just, he wasn't just an employee, they were some of our closest friends. And, and I can tell you, of all the stuff that happened and all the people that came and went, I can look back now and say, we would not have made it through what we went through without Jeff and Kim. Because there were times where everybody else took off, everybody, and it was really dark but they kept showing up and they kept showing up and they kept showing up even when they didn't have to. See, your ability to weather whatever you face is way more about who's with you than what's stacked against you. And so Gideon sends everyone who's afraid, he sends them home. And he thinks God is done, but God isn't done. It continues in Judges chapter seven, verse four. It says, then the Lord told Gideon, there are still too many. Bring them down to the spring and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. And when Gideon took his warriors down to the water, the Lord told him, divide the men into two groups. In one group, put all those who cup water in their hands and the other group put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouths in the stream. Only 300 of the men drank with their hands. All the others got down on their knees and drank with their mouths in the stream. And if I'm Gideon, I'm thinking, cool, we're only about to lose 300 of these guys. There's only two groups. One of them's being sent away. Whew, we went 32,000 down to 10,000. Now we're going from 10,000 down to 9,700. All right, we can keep this. But that's not how it plays out. See, the, the first time God sorts based on attitude. This time he sorts based on approach. And, and there are plenty of speculations as to why God did it this way. And the truth is we don't exactly know why this was God's criteria or even what it means. Like I see all kinds of people speak very confidently about why this was the criteria. And I'm like, mm, that doesn't really, I mean, I get what you're saying, but that's it, it, a stretch. What we do know is that crisis brings out the best 
and the worst in us, right? Like who we are and what we love and what we're capable of and how we behave and how far we're willing to trust God. All of those things are revealed when life presses in on us because pressure will surface all of those things. 10,000 soldiers stayed behind and said they weren't afraid. But who knows? We all know how to put on a brave face when we need to, right? That doesn't mean that we're gonna stand when the moment comes. That doesn't mean we have the resilience to push through and to fight and to make it through, to rise above. It's what's underneath that brave face is actually where resilience truly comes from. And so God sifts and sorted until he gets down to the right amount and the right combination of soldiers. And it turns out that it was only 300, the original 300. I think most of us give so little thought to who it is that we let into our orbit, who, who we do and face life with. And, and most of the time, the only filter we have is, do I like them? That's really the only filter we have. And, and it's not a bad place to start because none of us want to spend time around people we don't like. And some of us maybe have added a second filter of people that are toxic or people that are not good for us or in, in we don't always define what's not good for us in a really healthy, clear-headed way. But we, we had that extra filter. But, but we hardly ever ask the question, who in my life is making me better? Who are the people in my life who don't just show up, but who I trust enough, who I who love me enough to challenge and inspire and to call me to a bigger faith, to a, a more sacrificial life, to my best self? Who are the people that speak into your life and say, that's awesome, I love you, but I know you, you got more in you. You can do more than this. You, you can actually make a bigger impact. See, sometimes what's holding us back is too little time and too little depth with the right people and us going way too deep with the wrong folks. And it's not a value judgment that they're wrong. It's just we need people in our life who are going to compel us and propel us to be better, to grow, to have bigger faith, to trust God. This is absolutely critical. It's such a huge part of building resilience in your life. Don't leave your relationships to chance. Be intentional about putting yourself around people that will encourage you and guide you and occasionally even push you toward a God-driven life and toward a God-given passion toward a, you know, to be a better mom or a dad, to be a better wife or a husband, to be a better leader or friend. I think this is one of the things that makes being connected to a church so powerful because in our culture, there are so few environments, so few places that you can belong to and go on a regular basis where anybody actually cares anything about or focuses at all on your development and growth as a person. No, they want to help you earn money. There's all kinds of places like that. They, they want to help you in all kinds of different ways, but, but the places that are like, hey, we want to help you get better at life. There's not a lot of those. So get around people who are resilient in a way that you want to be and begin building relationships with them and spending time with them. Find some people with some scars who have been through some stuff. By the way, in my life, I've, one of my filters is like, I don't really trust people without scars because everybody has them. And so if they look like they don't have them, they're hiding them. And that makes me a little uneasy. 
in the end, you can't change the people around you, but you can change the people around you. You can. And changing some of the people around you has the power to actually change everything about your situation. So God has Gideon send home all but 300 of the soldiers, and this is the situation that he's left in. It's described a few verses later. Verse 7, it says, The Lord told Gideon, With these 300 men I will rescue you and give you victory. Send all the others home. And if you want to know what the odds were like, verse 12 says, The armies of Midian, of Amalek, and the people of the east had settled in the valley like a swarm of locusts. Their camels were like grains of sand on the seashore. They were too many to count. I don't know how many of that is, but it's a lot more than 300. And God's like, yes, we got them right where we want them. Can you feel it? Here we go. See, everything, every time God asks you to do something, I have to tell you, the odds are going to be stacked against you. They just are. If you can manage and handle all the good you're trying to do with your life, the dream that you're chasing, the problem that you're facing, quite honestly, you're doing faith wrong. Because you need to step into some situations that actually demand that you have faith, that you trust God because it's bigger than you, because you can't figure it out, because you can't just put your head down and push through, that you actually are like, God, if you don't show up, this is gonna be the shortest battle in history because we got 300 guys and they're looking pretty plucky and excited, but they have a few more than us. And the best part of, all of this, and especially for you and I, is in spite of the odds, God steps in and he does the impossible. God loves doing the impossible. He loves doing the impossible. If you don't think that, you need to read the scriptures. At the beginning of the story, and we looked at this last week in chapter six, you can go back and read it. But at the beginning of the story, God shows up to Gideon and says, hey, Look, it's time to stop hiding. It's time to stop surviving. It's time to stop running. It's time to start living. It's time for you to do something. And I want you, Gideon, I want you to go and rescue Israel. And so Gideon starts doing that and he thinks that's what he's doing is he's the one that's gonna rescue Israel. But now that the battle is imminent, I don't know if you saw it, we just read it. God shows up and says, I'm actually going to be the one doing the rescuing. I don't know if you caught on to that, but this is what's happening. Since you were willing to put yourself on the line to rescue others, I want you to know that I'm with you and I'm going to show up and I'm going to rescue you and I'm going to make it happen. See, what, what, I've learned about, what I've learned about myself, what I've learned about life from my own experiences is that we can become so afraid of death that we never live. We can be so afraid of failure that we just don't take any risks that would actually cause us, that cost us something if it didn't work out. We can be so afraid of pain and hard stuff that we never discover how strong that we can be or how powerfully present that God is. And that's the amazing thing about this this morning is that no matter who you are, you are not alone. God hasn't abandoned you, that he's come down to rescue you, but that rescue is so that you can be a part of the rescue of someone else. 
You may have thought you were fighting the fight alone. You may have thought it was all up to you. You may have thought you were the one doing the rescuing, but God has come down and Jesus is here and Jesus has come to rescue the world. You don't have to be the hero. There already is one and his name is Jesus. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12, verse one says this says, since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to this life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance, with perseverance, with resilience, the race that God has set before us. Don't run somebody else's race, run your race. And we do this, now he's starting to get into the resilience part. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, who is the champion who initiated and perfects our faith. Because of the joy that was waiting for him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and now he's seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all he went through. Think of all the hostility that he endured from broken, messed up, sinful people. And then you won't become weary and give up. Man, you want to tap into some resilience? You step into relationship with Jesus. See, but here's the thing. Some of us know Jesus. Some of us know people that know Jesus that aren't very resilient. It's because we've taken our eyes. We've taken our eyes off the champion. We've allowed circumstances and or people around us to pull our eyes away from the champion, the one who went through it all, the one who endured it all, endured it all for us. Because you cannot focus on what Jesus has done, what he's done for you, what he's done for that person that you don't like. You can't focus on the overwhelming love and grace and strength and beauty and power and resilience of God to stick it out, to deliver you and I and go out into the world and be angry and bitter and unloving and ungracious and wilt every time somebody disagrees with you every time somebody says something negative to you, these three remain faith, hope, and love. Let's pray.